Then Mordecai told them to return answer to Esther. Think not that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, release and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm so excited to be back today. For the past two weeks, I have worshiped with St. Luke's via the online campus. I've been blessed by the messages of Reverend Dave Petit and Reverend Josh Attaway. Now, I was worshiping online because I was part of the Reformation trip that we took from our church. We had a large group that flew to Germany to explore and have a greater understanding of what the Protestant Reformation means to us today. We then went to England to look at the English part of the Reformation and understand the beginnings of Methodism. I have to say there's something really meaningful about worshiping with your family of faith from afar, especially when you are in the midst of people and places in history that shapes and forms the way we worship today, how we're able to read scripture today, how we could come together. It was a meaningful moment in the entire trip for me to do that each time. It's good to be here and to be back with all of you. We were able to follow in the footsteps of Martin Luther and then for John Wesley. These are two men who gave their all, who lived in spite of trials and risks, Uh, For Luther in the 1500s and for Wesley in the 1700s, they made the most of the moment that they were given in life. We are all given that kind of chance. God calls us to live life to the fullest. One of the other things that was particularly meaningful for me was to visit Churchill's Museum in London. Here was a man that was elected to be the Prime Minister of Britain in 1940 at a time that he was almost elected by default. Neville Chamberlain had been the previous Prime Minister, and in 1938, he had entered into an agreement with Adolf Hitler. He had seen kind of the spread of the Nazi army, and so he and some others made an agreement, the Munich Pact, that would prevent Hitler, they thought, from invading Britain and its allies. But within a year, Hitler would renege on the deal, and Neville Chamberlain was almost cast out of office. He was forced out, and of all the leadership in Great Britain, almost no one wanted Winston Churchill. They all wanted 
Edward Wood, who was Lord Halifax. That's who Chamberlain wanted to replace him. The king wanted Lord Halifax, and all of the cabinet wanted that, but the people wanted Churchill. And so in May of 1940, when Churchill was 65 years of age, at a time when the war was almost at its worst for Britain, Churchill took the position of prime minister. And it was for such a time that he would stand strong against everyone else's opinions. Everyone thought that Hitler was going to keep marching, and he did. All of the countries of Europe at that time either uh, had been conquered or given in to Hitler and his allies, which were Italy and the Soviet Union at that time. And so only Britain was free at that moment. France had called up Winston Churchill, the prime minister, called him up and said that we are defeated. That happened just a few days after Winston Churchill took his position. The French prime minister said, we have nothing left. And so Churchill said, what about all your reserves, your troops, your, your ammunitions? And they said, we have none. Churchill would discover that more than half of the British Air Force were lost in France. And so British or Britain was alone, and Churchill was largely alone in Britain. The two major British newspapers were calling for Britain to enter into agreement with Hitler while they still had a chance. France was asking for that. At that time, Italy had not yet entered the war, and so Benito Mussolini called up Churchill and offered his services as a negotiator to broker a deal between Germany and Britain for the better good. Everybody was clamoring for appeasement because they had seen how Hitler had conquered so many And yet, Churchill continued to stand against that, even when he was alone on his cabinet. He would call together the outer cabinet, the larger group, and finally be able to convince them that there was no success, no victory in giving in to such an enemy. And so Britain would stand up to Hitler, and and history would be changed Now, Churchill would face great threat and risk. He would understand the great burden of what he was asking. He had served in World War I. He had seen loss of life, and he knew that he was asking his country in standing up to Hitler to continue to lose people's lives, to fight this fight that was so costly. He also knew that it would be even more devastating if they lost to Germany. And yet, he knew that the greatest loss of all would be giving in to the incredible evil that he had seen in Hitler. It was for such a time that Winston Churchill would make his mark in history. When he was elected prime minister, his assistant, his car driver, was taking him home, and he noticed that Churchill was uncharacteristically quiet And he was trying to break through the tension, and he congratulated Churchill. And then he told him, I only wish the position had come your way in better times. 
for you have an enormous task. At that, Winston Churchill became very emotional, and he replied, God alone knows how great it is. I hope it is not too late. I'm very much afraid that it is. We can only do our best. It would be a short time later that Churchill would meet with the King of England, and something happened in that meeting when they were talking about the task at hand that Churchill would come out of that meeting sure of his resolve and sure of his, his commitment and purpose. That night, he would write in his diary, I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. I felt as if I was walking with destiny, that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. I was sure I should not fail. He saw that all of his life was leading up to that moment. And that understanding that he was called for such a time gave him all the strength and tenacity that he would need. We are called for such a time as this. This morning, I want to continue on with our sermon series, Daring Greatly. We are looking at the kind of life that God calls us to live. We've been examining the quote by Theodore Roosevelt, which says, It's not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, but because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm and great devotion, who spends himself in worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if they fail, at least fails while, while daring greatly. Now, I love this quote because it reminds us that there are people on the sidelines of life, armchair quarterbacks, who will always be there to tell us what we could have done better, what we should have done, what we shouldn't have done. But it's the player on the field who's actually in the game. God created us to live life to the fullest, not to let life pass us by and just watch it go. We were meant to live and make a difference. We are given this moment to give our very best, to leave an impact in this world, to be devoted to a greater cause. Now, this morning's scripture passage comes from the Old Testament book of Esther. It's set in the time when the Hebrew people are held in captivity in Persia. Originally, the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem and taken the Hebrew people off into captivity, but then the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians. And so you have this setting where Esther and Mordecai, their story takes place. There, in the beginning of Esther, there's a king. His name is Xerxes. He's the king of Persia. 
and he has a queen named Vashti. Now, there comes a time that the king throws a huge party for all of his friends, and after several days of carousing and drinking, he summons his wife, Queen Vashti, to come and appear before all of these men. He wanted to show her off, and she refuses, probably with good reason, and it infuriates the king because she disobeyed his command. Now, his advisors tell him, you can't stand for this. Their greatest concern was that all the women in the kingdom will start disobeying their husbands if you don't do something. And so they told him to get rid of Queen Vashti, and so he did, and he needed a new queen. And the advisors uh, took to a search for the entire land, and they came across Esther, Esther was a young, beautiful woman. She was Jewish. Her parents had died, and so she was living in the household of her cousin, Mordecai. When she came to live in the household of the king, Mordecai would continue to advise her and give her encouragement. Now, one of the advisors of King Xerxes was a man by the name of Haman, and he disliked Mordecai. In fact, he hated him so much that he tricked the king into signing an edict that called for the annihilation of all the Jews in the land. Mordecai sent word to Esther, and he told her, Who knows, but that you came to power for such a time as this. It was because Esther was faithful to listen to the advice of Mordecai, faithful to follow God, and was courageous And because of those things, her people were spared that kind of devastation. I think there are three things that we can look at this morning to help us to live a life where we're daring greatly, where we face risks, but we serve each and every moment to do the greatest good possible. The first thing is to recognize that there are risks. We can't talk about daring greatly without realizing there are risks involved. For Queen Esther, she sent back word to Mordecai that she couldn't go before the king and plead for her people because there was a law against that. In the time of Esther, there was a law that said no one could come into the presence of the king without an invitation. It was a crime punishable by death. Now, if you happen to enter into the king's presence, your only hope was that he would extend the royal scepter and grant you mercy and clemency. But more often than not, you would be put to death. Now consider the plight of Queen Esther. The previous queen had publicly humiliated him. And so he was in no mood to let a second queen do the same. He wouldn't let anyone disobey him. She understood that she was risking her life and that she would be probably put to death. And so she sent that word back to Mordecai. And he said, who knows? But for this very moment, for such a time as this, that you came into power. Now, all of us will face moments that we can do the right thing, the good thing, And many of those moments, if we are really making a difference, will involve risk. Hopefully, it's not life-threatening, 
But sometimes emotional risks, emotional pain can be even worse. I was so glad that we visited the area where Winston Churchill was born and then laid to rest. I had just finished a biography about his life, and I was so impressed with him. His tenacity, his integrity, his resolve. When he came into power, he had already seen the problems with Adolf Hitler. He had the opportunity to hear the speeches of Hitler in the early 1930s. Winston Churchill's son, Randolph, was a journalist, and he needed to travel to Munich in 1932 to do some research there, and his father went with him. And while they were there, they saw the Nazis marching in the streets, and they heard the speeches of Hitler against the Jews. And they were both greatly disturbed by it. Winston Churchill would understand that hatred and racism anywhere is an affront to all of us. Now, while they were there, Randolph Churchill would come into the acquaintance of the press secretary for Adolf Hitler. And when the press secretary found out that Winston Churchill was there... He called him up and asked if he would be interested in meeting Hitler. And Winston Churchill replied, I would be fine with that, but I intend to ask him why he is so against the Jews. Well, the evening arrived and Hitler came to the hotel where Churchill was staying. And according to the account of the press secretary, Hitler came up to the window of the restaurant where Churchill was dining, and he looked in for a long time. And after a while, he turned and left, and the two never met. Winston Churchill would return to Britain and become one of the leading voices against Nazism. He founded the British Anti-Nazi League, and he would demand from the British government that they assist Jewish refugees who had been persecuted by the Nazis. He would do speeches and write letters to the newspapers and speak out and write anywhere he possibly could. But in the 1930s, all of his words fell largely on deaf ears. People didn't want to hear them. They were tired of war. They had experienced such loss and tragedy of World War I. And so they branded Churchill a warmonger, and they refused to listen to him until it was almost too late. He understood the very risk that he was asking. He knew that if he drew his country into a continued war against Hitler, thousands upon thousands of lives would be lost. He knew the risk that he was taking of pushing this, of of standing against Hitler That If they lost, which seemed very likely because the U.S. did not want to get involved at that time and the rest of Europe had had fallen, if they by themselves lost to Hitler, the devastation would be enormous. All of this was resting on his shoulders, and yet he also understood that there would be no consolation or victory if they sided with such incredible evil. He understood what his people were really about, and he encouraged them, despite the risk, despite the threat, to stand up against that kind of message. 
Now, we don't have to face the same kind of things that Churchill or Esther did, but we can turn on the television, we can read social media, the newspapers, and we understand very clearly that racism and hate still exist in our world. And God created us for such a time as this. We're called to share a message of love, of hope, and to speak out against hatred anywhere. It affects all of us. This is our moment to stand up and speak out for what is right. Second, it's important for us to focus not on the risk and threat, but on the opportunity to do good, the greater good. For Queen Esther, she was very aware that her life was at risk, and she told Mordecai that she would probably be killed if she went into the presence of the king, and he told her, do not think you will be safe just because you live in the king's household. You will perish. Now, I don't think Mordecai was talking to her about physical harm that would come to her. I actually think he was talking about something deeper, more profound. He was saying that if you stand by, and because you're afraid you don't do anything, and all of your people perish, you will have to live with the knowledge of knowing you didn't do everything possible. If we want to make an impact in this world, there will be times that we face risk and threat. Most of the time, it's not life-threatening. But still, most of those risks, whether we're fearful about failure, maybe we're worried about being embarrassed, Maybe we're worried about being the only one who stands up for what's right. And everyone, even people we respect, are going a different direction. How embarrassing and how alone would that feel? And yet we're called to do what's right, to stand up for love and mercy. This is our moment. One of the things that the trip impressed upon me was how many leaders of the Reformation gave everything they possibly could amidst the idea of threat to their life, risk about their ministry and livelihood. They gave everything for the greater good. Now, often Martin Luther is thought to be the uh, beginning of the Reformation, but there were several people and events that took place before that. In the early and mid 1300s, there was a man by the name of John Wycliffe who lived in England, and he is referred to as the Morning Star of the Reformation. Now, he was a professor at Oxford University, and while he was there, he spoke out against mistakes that the church was making. He wanted the church to be reformed, to be uh, the greatest good it possibly could be. He also began work on translating the Latin Bible into English so that all people would have the opportunity to read scripture for themselves. Now, this came at great cost to him. One of the interesting things that happened in his life was that the king of England, Richard II, married a Bavarian princess. Now, Bavaria was in the land that we would come to know as Germany today, but he would with his wife, institute a student exchange program from Oxford University to the University of Prague, which is where she was from. And the students from Oxford 
would take the writings of Wycliffe to Prague. And there was a university professor by the name of Jan Hus. And he was already speaking out against the mistakes of the church, the problems. He was speaking up for people to be able to access scripture for themselves. And when he received and read the writings of Wycliffe, they strengthened and encouraged him. He would go on to become martyred for his faith, but not before he had written down his own thoughts, his own works. Later on in the 1500s, Martin Luther would read the works of Huss and they would strengthen him. For so long, Martin Luther struggled with his own faith, feeling like he was never good enough to earn God's salvation. Now, He started reading scripture and understood the importance of reading scripture for yourself. And one of the texts, especially out of Romans, he saw that salvation wasn't something we earned, but something that was freely given by the grace of God. And so he would write about this and his ministry, his life was transformed. 200 years later, John Wesley was struggling with his faith. And he felt like he was never good enough to earn God's salvation. He went to a meeting at a Moravian chapel on Aldersgate Street, which we happened to uh, be near on our trip to London. And while he was there, and he admitted in his diary that he didn't even want to go that evening, but someone invited him. While they were there, they read Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And he would write that evening, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Here were all these Uh, string of leaders who continued to build on what was done before, and yet they were also encouraged by the strength and faithfulness of the leaders before them. From Wycliffe to Huss to Luther to Wesley to us today, we are called to live our greatest moments with great strength and by daring greatly so that we can make a difference in this world. And third, we need to remember that we might not always be recognized in the moment, but that our actions will be remembered if we make an impact in this world. Esther probably wasn't recognized for what she was doing outside of the palace, and Mordecai wasn't given credit for the advice he had given to Esther. And yet we're talking about their story all these years later. We remember them for the actions that they did to change the world. One of the most tender moments for me on the entire Reformation trip was going to the gravesite of Winston Churchill. We visited the family plot, and all of the people in the trip gathered round the gravesite, and we remembered this incredible man. 
We then walked back to the bus, and Dr. Long was the last one out of the cemetery. And as he was leaving, there was an elderly woman who was coming in. And she saw our group pass by, and so she asked Bob where we were from. And he said, Oklahoma. And her face lit up, and she said, oh, we love Oklahoma. It's a wonderful musical. People know all about us because of that musical. Now, she was being serious. She said that Oklahoma came to the West End in London shortly after World War II was over. And they were rebuilding from all this devastation. And that's, that musical had incredible music and songs that they were singing, and it lifted their spirits. Bob went on to tell her that we were coming to pay tribute to Winston Churchill, and she became very serious. And she said, you have no idea how frightening it was to know that Hitler was looking at us from across the channel. And then she went on to say that she still remembers hearing the sound of Churchill's voice on the radio and that they hung on every word. Then her eyes welled up with tears, and she said, you know he got us through all of this. He got us through. All these years later, such emotion rose to the surface in this woman's life because she remembered the actions that changed the world. To a large part, Winston Churchill wasn't immediately recognized for what he had done. In fact, after the war was over, he was voted out of office. Can you imagine how painful that would be? To work for the people, the country you love, and to be dismissed from your position? He worked for victory for them, and they gave him one of the most painful failures and defeats of his life. He didn't do it for the accolades, for the, the rewards of, of hearing how well he had done. He understood what needed to be done, and he stood for what was right. But it still must have been painful. He gave so much of himself. During all those years of the war, he slept too little. He drank too much. He suffered a heart attack on one of his trips to the United States, And to come to the end of the war to be able to celebrate and then to be put out of office by the people that you had worked for. Now later on, they would vote him back into the office of prime minister. But the reality is that Churchill never gave up on the people. Even after they voted him out, he stayed true to them. And he continued till his dying moments to be faithful to the people of that area, to that country, He worked to do what he thought was best till the end. He made the most of each moment that he was given. What kind of life do you want to live? None of us want to stay on the sidelines. We want to be in the moment, living life to the fullest. And we are given this moment in time. We were created for such a time as this. We might not always get recognized, but our actions will be remembered if we work to make an impact on this world, if we live by daring greatly, and if we will be committed to following God for such a time as this.
It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.